Welcome to Upgrading Society, a podcast and community centered around discussing, dissecting, and implementing projects that are seeking to improve the world. Our goal for each episode is to leave you, the listener, with a good sense of what each project is all about. To do this, we have developed what we call a CAP score. CJ, take it away. C is for clarity, A for action, and P for potential. Clarity is how clear your idea is. Action is what you have done thus far. And potential is how promising your vision is. Each letter will be scored from 1 to 9, leaving us with a three-digit score in the end. To get these ideas to the highest score possible, we have three tools to help facilitate the conversation. Mike, tell us more. When you hear this sound, the person speaking has to explain what they mean in simpler terms. We call this no big words. When you hear this sound, everyone takes a deep breath and explains how they are feeling in the moment and give a score of 1 to 10 in comprehension. We call this checking in. When you hear this sound, People riff on future scenarios based on what they just heard. We call this What If. That's it. Welcome to Upso. Let's go. Jamie Joyce is the founder and executive director of the Society Library, a nonprofit that creates structured knowledge databases of media concerning debates and discussions around complex social issues. Her goal is to improve humanity's relationship with information online. The Society Library projects include the Great American Debate, the Internet Government, COVID Convo, and one day, the AI Politician. Jamie has a background in international sustainable development. She oversaw 30 projects in more than 20 countries and served as a representative to the United Nations on behalf of the NGO she served. Jamie is also currently on the board of Wikitongues, a nonprofit organization creating a seed bank of the world's 7,000 languages and seeding revitalization efforts across the world. Enjoy. So, Jamie, thanks again for coming on to Upgrading Society. Now, how would you say that you are upgrading society with the Society Library? Well, thank you. Firstly, thank you all for having me, and thank you for your question. Uh, the work that I do is in improving humanity's relationship with information. I find that our relationship with information is one of the most fundamental and one of the most important, and is really an important lever to our growth and evolution. Uh, information, whether it's internal information or external information, meaning like numbers and arguments and claims and things like that, but also our internal information, our intuition, our emotions, our unspoken instincts, our relationship to these types of information um, drive our decisions and they drive what we do in the world and how we act and whether we decide to collaborate um, or, or war with each other. So I personally think that mastering our relationship with both internal and external information is the key to just in improving humanity in so many different domains. So what the Society Library does right now, like actually, um, is we extract arguments, claims, and evidence from various forms of media in order to construct databases, which house all of the argumentation from all points of view on really complex social and political issues. So that we're, so we're gathering all this information so that people can make more informed decisions about how they want to act based on having access to this full breadth of information. And um, some of the topics we focus on currently include climate change and COVID and election integrity and things like that. Ooh, this is such a good topic today. This is awesome. I mean, what's the date today? Can we timestamp this for 30 years <laughs> later? We know we're right in this the middle is, of everything. Today is September 23rd. It's being recorded on September 23rd of 2020. Of 2020. What a great, great topic to be talking about today. Yeah. Get it. Uh, 
I want to dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. I want to learn more about how she does it. Any any yeah, questions no, we need to check in? No, yeah, I'm let's go. Let's yeah, dive keep in. rolling. You've done that you've done that introduction before. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Thank you. I, it's not my first podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and again, thank you all for inviting me here. So how we do this is we take uh, books, podcasts, we take videos, we take scholarly articles, government reports, we take websites, we take all of this textual information, and then we transcribe all of it into text. And then our analysts literally extract the logical structures of it line by line. And so what we've done is we, we constantly balance between using ML, claim mining technology, argument mining technology. It's not quite there yet for us. Human analysts are still much better. But what we found is that you can yield so much meaning from really good sources. So right now our strategy has been find the really comprehensive sources and completely logically unpack that. And that yields a, an entire structure of a debate on a particular topic. Um, what we've interestingly found is that when we do this, we've done this with climate change. So we've, we've transcribed books, we've transcribed podcasts, we've looked at government reports, and we break it up line by line and have analysts deconstruct the logic of what is being said. Um, we found that in the United States, English speaking United States, there's about 220 subtopics of debate about climate change. And those subtopics imply at least two positions and potentially tens of thousands of arguments and claims and pieces of evidence each. So that's like an amazing amount of complexity. And in, in, in doing this work, we've also discovered that there's an amazing amount of co complexity in how we speak. There's so much abbreviation and meaning and assumptions and meaning. And so our specific technique of unpacking that actually yields a lot more information than looks to be there at, at the surface level. Um, so once we've extracted all of these claims, we categorize and organize them. And that's what's created this hierarchy this hierarchy, this hierarchical structure um, that leads to those 220 subtopics. So those are kind of like the islands where people are really debating. Um, and it kind of makes sense that climate change as one topic has persisted for so long is because it's so complex and there's so many different debates people are having. So it's really difficult to really work through all of them and come to a resolution. Yeah, or wow. even have the proper foundation with which to begin the argument, right? That's a huge right. thing. So, so your goal is to really get to the truth, right? That's... That's basically like, you're just like, how do we take the information that's out there and unpack it, but also like repack it, repackage it in a way of where people are like, I can rely and trust this source. And that's really the goal for you guys, right? Yeah, yeah. So you said a couple things there that I want to touch on. One, we, we do aim to be an institution of trust. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We're not owned by anyone. And we are a truth-seeking organization. But I will say, we never decide what the truth is. You'll never hear the society library say, okay, this is the truth. Right. Like, we, we, we believe that the truth is out there and among the possibilities of that which remains, once what is wrong has been kind of debunked. But it's, the truth is very elusive. Facts are actually in, incredibly difficult to really prove when you're deconstructing. How do we know this is true? Like, what evidence is there? Like, how do we really know? So we take this, like, uh, epistemological approach, meaning, like, we inquire into how we know what we know um, and just do that all the way down in terms of inquiring into the debate. And um, that's, that's what we offer. So we do deconstruct and we repackage and we just offer that to people. And um, some of the programs we have, one is called the Great American Debate, where we deal with climate change specifically. And what we're looking to do here is not just be a truth-finding entity, but also offer societal mediation. 
there's many different points of view on climate change. There's subtle differences and there's polar opposite differences. And everyone who falls into one point of view or another has come to that point of view from experiences, through access to information. And our goal is to map that and then create media, films to help people walk through. These are all the different points of view that people have. And we all live together in a society. We kind of have to reckon with that people having different points of view, but everyone should have access to the arguments and evidence and claims and media that people are using to reinforce their points of view. And at the end of the day, it's up to the individual person's values, whether they value rigorous scientific inquiry or whether they value a religious perspective or whether they you know, value their own gut. Um, the truth is almost kind of subjective when it comes down to humans, because it's actually really difficult to prove objectively um, if you're being intellectually honest. So we're just here to offer and facilitate that mediation and that structured inquiry, because otherwise it's happening all over the media, all in scientific institutions and scholarly papers. It's a lot of information for people to go through. So we're just trying to make it easier. That makes complete sense. And I was, you answered my question. I was going to ask because about the analysts, right. And what the function of the analysts do and what it sets, what sets the society library apart. Right. Cause we're hearing a lot about this from, you know, the, the most remedial of, like, you know, use DuckDuckGo instead of Google. So you, you know, reformulates the search engine and you get more, you know, autonomous search results to, to these higher institutions that are saying, I am the authority on what's right and wrong. But then, you know, who is actually pulling the, the, the strings back there? What's the process with which they come to what is truth, right? And I, I think it's phenomenal that instead of the analysts that you have, telling us what is right and wrong by their personal deduction, that you're allowing a, a cohesive solution set of different viewpoints so that we can say, this is the most intelligent and derived from the, the most foundational perspective on this side of the argument. And here's the other side in the same fashion. And you as a human now have a full blush understanding of what these sides are, and you can make your own choice from there. Truth is in the eye of the beholder, but the right information and the foundations are what's important. That That is phenomenal to me. And, and I have a strong opinion about all these fact-checking things going on, right? Even during the debates next week, there's going to be fact-checkers. I'm like, okay, like who pays these fact-checkers and what is the fact-checking going on? Like, how can we even... You know, that's debate at its own right. And when you become intelligent enough, it all deduces down to where is the basis of truth. Like, right, that's, you can debate on a high level and get into and have a bunch of fun. But at the end of the day, if we don't have a foundation that we start from, we are, we are doing nothing fast, right? So I'm, yeah. this is cool. What a great I, I hope. Thank you. And I, I do want to clarify too, because I don't want to be misunderstood. When I said truth is subjective, it's it's like in a practical sense. Like some right. people will argue there is an objective truth, um, but you know, <laughs> truth beyond a reasonable doubt. Like whoever is determining what's reasonable, because you can and ask endlessly, how do we know this is true? And like, there's a limit to reason, um, which is why like philosophers have been ideating on this question for so long. Um, so I do want to say some people argue there is an objective truth, but we take the point of view of in, you know, in, in our day-to-day -day lives, people choose what they think is true and that's more subjective. But anyway, back on to fact checkers. So I do want to say that like, I really appreciate the fact checking, you know, institutions. They, they operate around the world. I think they're really trying to do a fantastic job. However, I have become frustrated because again and again, I find errors and I've written to them and they do not update their fact-checking pages. And it's been really frustrating. One of the biggest issues that I have is that sometimes fact-checking 
picking easily falls into the logical fallacy of cherry picking, which means you pluck something out of its context and you use it as your evidence. In this case, a fact checker will pluck a fact and they'll take it out of its full historical context or out of the context of the debate and say, you know, we say this is true or not true. And they don't recognize that by pulling it out of its, for example, full historical context, they're supporting one narrative over another narrative, where if you actually kept it within the context, um, like historically, it probably wouldn't support that narrative. So that's kind of been a little bit frustrating is that I think fact checking should really be paired with fallacy checkers that check the fact checkers just to make sure they're not accidentally cherry picking and being unintentionally biased. Um, I was recently on another podcast and we were discussing about how frustrating it is um, in the scholarly world because when you when you rely on institutions of trust like universities and they'll release blogs and things like that and they misrepresent the studies themselves which i've also seen happen it it dawns on you that you really have to go to the individual studies themselves and look at how it was structured um in, in order to make a decision your, yourself and um sometimes universities are also just as inflexible at updating and representing you know the full truth of what was described in the discussion section of the scholarly article so um, although I think we're at a really interesting time in history, we're at like the dawn, I think, of the Enlightenment age where we really realize like, hey, our relationship with information isn't the best it could be. But we do have the technology to be more transparent and rigorous with this inquiry. And we're also at the same time losing trust in media institutions and institutions of academia and things like that. And while I love them because, my God, if you're doing research, the wonder wonderful thing about academia is that it actually cites its sources Huh, like that becomes incredibly frustrating when you're doing web research because people do not operate right. by that standard. So I love <laughs> academia for that. I do have some criticisms, of course, because it's, you know, it's an institution built by people. You know, of course, there'll be, you know, faults and flaws and that's OK. But I do think with technology, we can get better. And I hope Society Library will help encourage that and be a part of that movement. So how does Society Library, like your your analyst, right? Obviously, you guys do things differently or are trying to do things differently than the the other fact checkers, right? So what like what's the standards or what's kind of like the formula that you guys have in place to just be better at it or, or whatever better means, right? Like to be more accurate. Yeah, um, there's a few different things we deploy. One is we have a three week program of logic and argumentation, where essentially we try to break down people's inherent biases. If people come to us because they want to be analysts, because they care about climate change, or they care about one of the subjects, one of the first things that we do is make them deconstruct the um, opinions of whatever is the opposite of what they believe. And so they really like start to unpack like, oh, there's actually a lot here. And they may start to feel themselves getting a little bit persuaded. And we're like, see, like it, it's really a rigorous inquiry that needs to happen for you to realize like, there's more to this side than I thought. And, you know, they actually address certain arguments that I have on my side. So anyway, we have a three week tra argumentation and training program. Um, and then we also do something called devil's advocacy research. So devil's advocacy is like, as soon as we find a claim in a piece of media, we invert that claim into its opposite as well as like a range of other implied claims. And we go and look for evidence for that. So it prevents us from going down one rabbit hole versus another. We just immediately split it up and go look for evidence to support that. Um, and then it's just a recursive process of like you find an argument, you break it down into claims, you invert those claims to find the opposite. Those will yield more arguments. You break those down, you invert those, you go and look for the opposite. So it's just this constant unpacking process where we slowly start to find all of the different rabbit holes that we can go down and we just travel down them and we try to go down all the way to original sources, like go right to the Q pages, for example. Mm. Amazing. Wow. 
I, I have a personal, more of a personal question. What, what really, what, what caused this <clears throat> fire for truth seeking in your life? How, what, what, where did this come from? Such a great question. Um, it's a lot of things, really. I would say that it's been a lot of experiences accumulating over the course of my life. The earliest one was definitely impactful and stayed with me forever. And then um, the thing that really informed and shaped the Society Library happened more recently. So I'll, I'll start with the first, the most early childhood experience, if that's not too strange. Oh, and then yeah, I'll talk about how it shaped up. That's great. So I, I was... Okay. So I was a very, very small child. And I weirdly got the impression through stereotypes that intelligent people wore glasses. My uncles, when they would come over and smoke cigars and have these philosophical conversations, they all had glasses. All the characters I really loved on TV had glasses. And that was just kind of something I observed in my life, but was also a stereotype that was perpetuated in media and on television at the time. And so I thought to myself, well, gosh, you know, I, I love hanging out with my uncles and I just, I want to grow up to be intelligent. So I guess I need glasses. Like I made that stupid logical jump of like to be smart you need glasses because i was like you know five um and i was walking to like my grandmother's house one day and i saw a broken pair of glasses on the side of the road and i picked it up and i put them on my face and i was just so delighted because i thought i'd arrived and my mother caught me and she's like no, no no take those off you'll damage your eyes and then you'll really need glasses and i was like ah okay so i got that extra little piece of information i need to have damaged eyes to wear glasses and then i'll be a smarty pants so I immediately walked outside and stared into the sun and burned <laughs> my eyes to the point of like being like nearly legally blind for the rest of my life. And uh. it dawned on me, like, like I, and I was a straight A student and it, interestingly, funny enough, I was, you know, straight A little kid. I, I, I just kicked butt in school. Um, and it was when we were supposed to be able to tell the time on a clock on the wall. We we're supposed to look at it, the time. We would just get quizzed all throughout the day. Can we tell the time? And I was failing because I couldn't see. And so it was interesting that, you know, the, the moment that I realized, like, oh, I, I now can get glasses because I can't see was a failing mark, right? right. <laughs> um, and it dawned on me, like, oh, my gosh, I took a really extreme action based on bad information wow. that permanently affected me for the rest of my life. And it turns out that information isn't true. Wearing glasses does not make you smarter. That's just the impression I got from stereotypes and from like firsthand experiences by seeing my uncles wear glasses. And it really shocked me to my core of like, oh my gosh, information is so powerful. And I would just observe information traveling from one person to the next. And I would notice how people would react to information. Like, oh, wow. Like some people, when you give them information, get very upset. Some people pretend it's their information, like it's their opinion or their idea. And they act as if it's theirs or it's who they are. And so I was like, okay, th the relationship people have with information is extremely powerful. There's something to this. And it made me very sensitive to stereotypes and socialization. It probably led me to studying sociology later in college. Um, the interaction between institutions and individuals and ideas. And it was when I was in college that uh, I was on this tear of reading British literature, but Google Books had recommended the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. And so I started reading that and like, mm. my God, what a genius of a, of a human being, like absolutely outstanding. The, he was an amazing diplomat, you know, a scientist, um, an incredible businessman and just like a, a public servant through and through co-founded one of the first public charity hospitals, American Philosophical Society, UPenn, on and on. Right. Turns out he had a specific method where he curated 12 intellectual individuals of his. They would present essays on some moral, philosophical or political issue. They would adhere to very specific rules of debate and deliberation. And then from this deliberation, they would come up with ideas like 
a public lending library or fire stations to stop buildings from burning down. Like, you know, pretty basic things that are now in like every single city and town in the industrialized world. But these are ideas that were generated through a very specific method and process. And given that I was studying sociology at the time, I thought to myself, well, gosh, there is like hundreds of thousands of, you know, political science students, criminological students, sociology students, social psychology students writing essays about social and political issues. And what's interesting about undergraduates, because that was kind of my frame of reference, is that they're fresh from the political socialization of their parents. They are not yet scientifically minded per se, but like they're using scientific tools and methods and procedures for the first time. So I was interested in how different students in classrooms that are assigned the same subject using the same tools and books or, or different tools and books are making slightly different variations of argument and how their political bias from you know just having graduated high school has an impact on their writing. And so I just became fascinated with what would it take to just compare and contrast all these different writings from all these different domains and students, even if they're all talking about the same thing and using the same materials. Mm -hmm. And that birthed the idea of, okay, we need a mass distributed content analysis process and we need to break down the language and do all these things. And so I thought about this idea for quite a long time and I grew as did the idea of the society library and it grew beyond you know college student essays and hey why don't we break down various forms of media let's break down television and radio and books and textbooks and all of these things and start really inquiring into like how do we know what we know um and so it evolved much like i did and then i uh, left the ngo i was working for previously and started working on this wow amazing wow that story from your childhood resonates so well that's, that's beautiful like phenomenal Thank I mean, you for sharing that. And it paints the perfect picture, right? Like, yeah. like there is meaning behind exactly what you're doing, and it drive from a perfect example. I mean, you're you're obviously the right the right billboard for what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. So I got a, I got a what if. Okay. So what if institutions changed the way they taught history to this methodology, where they gave both both viewpoints of like American history, right? Like, why don't we take both viewpoints for throughout or contrasting viewpoints or arguments throughout the entire evolution of American history to be able right. to teach American history, right? There's so much argument and there's so much debate and all these, we're taking down the statues and what's right and wrong and who was Christopher Columbus and why do we need to tell somebody who Christopher Columbus was? Why don't we give the opinions that are relevant, right? The 92% of the bell curve, why don't we teach all of that and let, let, intellectually minded young individuals that are trying to form an opinion on life have every every different position instead of telling them how to think about these things like i mean that would be amazing uh, i mean I, I we talk about this all the time it's like it's one thing to to know both sides right but it's another thing to be open to knowing both sides like as a society, we have to question everything. And that's a big problem right now is that people are either just lazy and they're just like, ah, I just don't care enough. Or it's a real, like, they believe in this truth and they're not even willing to look at another opinion, which is, yeah. you know, a problem in itself. I, I Like, how do we, how do we push the needle to have people to start to gut check their entire surroundings. Like, how do you do that? Like, how are you guys, are, are you guys trying to, I mean, obviously you're trying to do that. Like, how do we do that? Right. Yeah. Great question. So I, I do agree that, um, or I, I'll rather, I'll say, 
uh, I think there are trends in education. And I do think that people confuse opinion for identity. And unfortunately, when some people have an opinion, it really means that the opinion has them. And I think we're seeing that today very much with American history. And um, I think there was a report released by a committee to the mayor of D.C. that made a recommendation for taking down a Benjamin Franklin statue, for example, because at, at one point he owned enslaved persons. And that's an example of taking a fact out of historical context, because while it's true that he did um, have enslaved persons and he ran a newspaper that he franchised um, and they ran ads for the sale of people, um, later on in life he visited a school where um, African-American children were learning. And he's like, oh my God, we are so wrong about this. Like they have just as much potential and intelligence as any white kids. Like we are totally screwing this up. And he became like president of the Pennsylvania abolitionist society. He tried to get the abolition of slavery incorporated into the constitution. Um, he worked internationally with various groups to try to spread the abolition movement. So it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, yes, yes, he, he was, he did have slaves in his home, but at the same time, like I don't think it was the dying, you know, uh, wish of a, an old man to try and repent for his sins. Like he seemed to really uh, take action to try and rectify the situation for the remainder of his life. And there's evidence of this being like archived letters. Um, yeah. And so I do think showing both sides, multiple sides is really important. And something that we do have to reckon with is that human beings have limitations in, in attention and right. time. And um, it, it takes a lot of work to gather all that information and remove the bias, add the nuance and context and present it. And that's exactly what we're trying to do, right? And if I had all of the resources in the world, we'd be doing this for every subject right now at the Society Library. But we have to choose kind of like the really polarized ones just to demonstrate to people the complexity of it all. So for us, our Great American Debate program, where we present our work on you know, mapping the climate change debates in the United States, we have specific goals. One is depolarization, inoculating against disinformation, increasing subject matter knowledge, and then this is the really important one to me, is increasing intellectual humility. My goal is that humanity really starts to reckon with um, like how uncertain we actually all are and how very little information we use to inform our positions and opinions on things. And I, I really hope that what we can literally show is the complexity of these issues and how it's really our duty to examine all the different points of view and how we know what we know and travel down those rabbit holes from like point of view down to the datum, right? Down to the datum and evidence before we make decisions and wield our political power in a way that can impact others and impact our economy and impact our government structure and impact people's rights. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, we are working towards that and it's just going to be one subject at a time, but we are trying to create that movement of humanity embracing complexity. And I certainly hope that that echoes through educational institutions as well, because um, you know, wh whomever's running the textbooks and setting the curriculum is really shaping the minds of many, many people um, and how those minds interact and have, you know, chemical reactions with other ideas floating around is, you know, how we have the situation that we have today. And I think if we're more measured about it, um, you know, we can we can really bring about uh, enlightenment and a new age of reason and intellectual revolution. And we can just start evolving all of our institutions so it can maximize freedom for everyone. Yeah. I love that. I, I um, when you were describing the Ben Franklin story, uh, it brought to mind a um, kind of a metaphor that I heard from another podcast where they were saying that stories or or in individual datum or, or whatever you you want to say are are like stars in the sky, and the constellations are the 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 things that we the point of views that we have around these. So we connect these dots and we say, oh, this, 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 it makes uh, a, you know, a 
a uh, lion. lion in the sky, whatever those lions, yeah, like a lion. It's like, no, no, that's actually a crab. And it's like, no, it's a this, no, it's that. It's like, well, no, it's all of those things, depending on your point of view. And you might not see right. that star, you might not see that star, blah, blah, blah. So what I really like about that is that at the society library, you guys are just cartographers, just really putting all of these stars on the map so that people can draw their own constellations and discuss why they see what they see. I, I love that. I love that. And turning those stars off that shouldn't be seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're actually anti-censorship. So for us, uh, and that's actually come straight out of the uh, Library Bill of Rights. So um, of the American Library Institution or American Library Association, um, there's an office for intellectual freedom and they created these Library Bill of Rights. And um, one of the things that's so amazing about libraries is that they're very much anti-censorship because it's not necessarily about controlling information. It is about providing relevant information. You don't want to mm -hmm. put a library in the middle of a Hispanic community and have only English speaking books or, or English written books, right? right? So it is about providing relevant information, but it's very much anti-censorship because it's, it's not about controlling information, but it's about just more information increase the right. context, like really increase someone's ability to put things in context. So at the Society Library, we say, you know, we're not in the business of persuading anyone to think a certain way. We're in the business of changing the context in which people think by giving them more information. So if there's like a quote unquote dangerous idea, well, it, it can be there, but it'll be revealed that it has no evidence and it's inflammatory language and it's associated with these other ideas that don't have any evidence. It, there's arguments yeah. that it's come from a specific place and that it's designed for a specific reason. So everything just in context. Uh, it, to, to build off of that analogy, it's like if you are talking about a, uh, a star in the sky that is a, a pivotal star that's dangerous and that, that should be erased, well it might actually just turn out that that star is a lightning bug that's about like 10 feet from your face and no one else can see that lightning bug. And once you start revealing that and you realize what it actually is, that it is a lightning bug, that it's hovering right in front of your face and that um, it's not a star in the sky, that changes your perspective. And uh, that's, just, that's more information versus yeah. less. So I love that. Oh, great metaphor. Thank you. This is not an intellectual com com comment at all, but I, I think it would be fascinating to go through those outlier databases just to see what <laughs> what's in there, right? <laughs> or like 10 years from now, like, all right, there's 4,000 really random pieces of fact. Let's see which one was right, right? Like this dude did UFOs, son of a gun. They are UFOs. This guy was right. I mean, they, they, I, I, turning it off is the wrong, wrong way to say it. It's almost better to be able to see that person so you can change your yeah. perspective. But I mean, you know, if, if we have a flat earth argument, I'd really love to see what the 4% on either side of the bell curve is having to say there, right? Like <laughs> that would be, that would be a uh, stimulating flat earth. <laughs> I'm right in the middle. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the ultimate truth? Oh. <laughs> the uh, truth about yeah. everything. This is phenomenal. And uh, I, I think we missed to the point that like everything that we're doing on social media and everything that we're doing where it's being given to us and we're, we're supposed to consume it. Like it's trying to understand what we like and give us more of that, which is the exact opposite of what you're trying to create. Right. Like if I were to go online and like a Biden or a Trump uh, post, they're going to push more of that content at me where especially right now, someone that likes one opinion should be flushed with more valuable opinion from the other side to be able to get a better understanding of what they're dealing with. Right. Like you're, you're going very much salmon upstream with the, what you're trying to do, but that 
is the point of why we're having you on this podcast because yeah. we see that and that's the right way to do it, right? We see a lot of the problems with what's going on in social media, but this this is an exact introvert, a push against that yeah. that that just constant flow of stuff that doesn't shouldn't it doesn't make you grow. It's right? hard because you you know the information is being given by companies that are making yeah not not given by them but filtered through by companies that are making extreme amounts of money right so it's like how to get around that is like you can't fight it right you can't fight facebook you can't fight google but you can just go somewhere else you know like like you're not going to i mean hopefully somebody could win that but I think it's giving people more options. It's giving them like an alternative to finding information that mm-hmm. can inform what they may think or may not think. Right. It's, it's so tough. I, I don't know. It's, I'm going to go to society library next time I get into like yeah. a philosophical dinner conversation. When I get home, I'm going to be like, like uh, uh, uh. where is this coming from? Where yeah. I didn't want to tell him it was wrong at dinner, but I want to know where his argument comes from. Yeah. And then when I see him next time, I'll be like, you know, you follow a pretty yeah. doofy person to get your information. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but even that, what you're saying, like, right. Like it's like, you want to know where someone's coming from. Like that's a huge step yeah, or that so, most people aren't even there yet. And no one grows unless you, unless right. you have that. Right. And that's right. just people audibly yelling things at each yeah. other. Which is interesting because this whole, everything we're talking about today, you know, you making the point about kids that are 16, 17, 18 years old, living at home, going off to college and, half of their brain is their parents and half of their brain is like the potential of, of learning something for themselves. And I, I would argue that like a lot of people don't start making their own opinions. till they're like literally on their own. And even then possibly not, you know, like it's like your parents have such a big influence over the way that you think, not everybody, but like a lot of people, like I know growing up, like, they are different people now completely if them their parents and the way that their parents thought about life, politics, religion, um, you know, he, mankind, humankind in, in itself. So and it probably changed from the time they left the house to yeah. becoming a full adult exposure therapy. And then at the end of the day, you know, they have to inquire into when they're, you know, free from their parental influence and they've arrived at a different point of view. Like why did they arrive there? What, you know, potentially early childhood experiences are coming to the forefront? What new influences do they have? Um, and I, I think that takes a lot of looking in um, because when you ask yourself over and over and over, how do I know this is true? How do I know this is true? And for every answer you give yourself, you just continue to ask and ask and ask. I mean, you're essentially applying the Socratic method to yourself. And eventually what you reach is like, well, you're not really sure of really anything. How can you be really sure? Or you've you've now arrived at your fundamental belief. Like I have fundamental beliefs about reality. I have fundamental beliefs about the value of science. Like you you do eventually bottom out at either your values or complete uncertainty. Um, and so I think that is a lot to ask each individual person to undergo by themselves. But hopefully, um, and I think there is an emerging movement to really inc- like encourage people to embrace complexity and embrace uncertainty. So I think we'll get there culturally because I think we're already starting to see the beginnings of it with the lack of trust in institutions. 
Um, We're no longer deferring our judgment to authorities as much. Um, I think we're in this weird in-between period where we're now deferring our um, opinions to the authority of like thought leaders and people who we trust who may not have the credentials, but they say interesting things. Um, So I think we'll eventually get over that hump. So going down that kind of rabbit hole a little bit, um, what other things have, um, this is kind of a leading question because I I kind of know Mm -hmm. a little bit more about this, but what other things has Society Library branched out into um, using some of the the content that you have developed so far? Do you want to talk a little bit about um, maybe specifically the AI politician? That sounded really interesting to me. Ah, okay. Yes. So... I mentioned the Great American Debate. That's one of the programs of the Society Library. The Society Library itself is a library. Um, The goal of the Society Library, interestingly, is actually to interrupt the future generational inheritance of political socialization. So for new generations that have not yet been born, we want to create this library so that they grow up with all of these different points of view on all of these different subjects so that people can more willfully and freely choose what they want to believe in and where they want to invest their belief and their political power and their social power by having the benefit of all this information articulated. So Society Library is educational. It's our long-term vision. The Great American Debate is what we're working on now, which is mapping the debate, like being the cartographer of public debate on something and doing the laborious work of collecting and deconstructing the reasoning of things. But there are two other programs. Um, Well, technically three. (laughs) We have COVID Convo, which is similar to Great American Debate about COVID. But then there is the Internet Government and the AI Politician. Mm. So I will explain the Internet Government quickly to understand the AI Politician. The Internet Government is an online system of representation of ideas. Essentially, when we think about politicians as representatives and politicians have many roles but if we think about just their representative role um i did a tedx talk on this actually about how their role as representative could perhaps be replaced with a database a structured database because if there's a a politician who's meant to represent hundreds of thousands of people in their district like do we really expect that person to hear hundreds of thousands of input on a particular subject and process it in their own mind so they could actually represent that group Mm. um you know i don't think so so instead, I, posi- I, I offered in my TEDx talk that we should replace politicians with databases. And so the Internet government is essentially that system of representation of people's ideas. It's not about voting for an idea. It's not about majority rule. It's about what are all of the collective ideas of a society. And we will do the work of structuring a structured inquiry and debate so that we could eventually determine as a community um, specific thresholds to which we consider something proved. And then we can uh, frame the conversation as a problem solution framework. I know this is getting a little fuzzy with terms that are internal, but problem solution framework, like for the climate change debates, for example, we have five questions that are all about debating the relevance and existence of climate change. And then there's a sixth question that's like, what could or should we do about it? So it's about matching those two things together. So based on the extent to which we know certain arguments are proven true, um, what solutions correspond with those needs articulated? And then the idea is that based on the actual arguments themselves, if it passes a certain threshold, that would generate the content for a piece of policy that we would suggest to Congress. So it'd be a public policy producing engine based on the contributions of, you know, doing the same work of the Society Library and Great American Debate. But instead of it being people by majority rule, it would essentially be merit based of the argumentation itself. And so all of the work of the internet government relies on our fundamental understanding of mapping um, and, and dealing with 
public data, scholarly data that we're doing now with the Great American Debate. And then once we've created the internet government, which is the true distributed content analysis process, because the whole, you know, once it becomes extremely political, it, it's now a source of potential power and people are going to want to corrupt it in various ways. So we've actually built a model that's bicameral, much like the United States Congress, of how the information is broken down and processed and restructured that is done um, with intercoder reliability. So there'd be private persons working on, on processing that data. And the public could also participate because the system itself would manage the, the tasks. And that's actually informed by the work of the Great American Debate. But anyway, once we get there and we have this lovely public policy producing engine, it's essentially like, you know, a think tank that's spitting out based on the contributions and values and arguments of others. Um, it, it'd be actually very easy to use that database to program a debate bot. Um, and that would be the AI politician. So essentially, the internet government produces policy to submit to Congress, and anyone who wants to argue against that piece of policy can argue with a bot that's literally informed with the structured argumentation of like the collective country um, to defend that piece of policy. So eventually these programs get political just so that we can have a sincere representation of ideas um, and, and people will have an advocate in their corner for it. The will of the people through AI. Yeah, can we check? I was going to do another word, just, but yeah. This like, I can't breathe. I was like watching you say all that and I was like, I need to take a Let's breath. Let's all right take now. a nice yeah. deep breath together. <laughs> Where are we at with comprehension? I feel okay. So yeah. let me let me try to back our way. And so the two organization, one is meant to understand a section of the population's desires and their will through some kind of procurement of that information and 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 categorization. And then it delivers it to the second piece of technology that uses the conglomeration of that information to debate someone that would be a gatekeeper to making it happen. So basically we're allowing the will of the people to be more accurately conglomerated and then put a machine with that conglomeration behind the argument to if the, if it's opposed, right? So the, the whole goal is to, to get a better understanding of the will of the people and then to deliver that in a fashion that can't be argued with unless there's reason behind it and facilitate change more effectively. I didn't make it any easier at all. That didn't, that didn't make it any easier at all. That just helped me. It yeah, just helped me. Can no you one just else. repeat everything? No, <laughs> I, I think I can explain it better in like a couple sentences. Yeah, so can. essentially in government, um, the, pe the public elects representatives and they call the representatives, they email the representatives and they tell the representatives what they care about and what they want to see happen. Those representatives go to Congress and they debate and they deliberate and they advocate on behalf of their constituents um, with their other politicians in order to create policy. You know, and, and we're not privy to that. We're not privy to what happens in the mind of a politician or in Congress. And then they collaboratively produce policy. They vote on that policy and it gets passed and implemented. At one stage, you know, the, the public may say like, oh, well, what about this aspect of the policy? It doesn't reflect our wishes. And it's the same role of a politician to communicate with the public or defend that policy with their other politicians in Congress. So the work that we're doing is great American debate. Let's let's map all the arguments of the public as well as scholarly institutions and pretty much all the stakeholders, right, which include private industry. So we're mapping that content out. 
then creating a framework for that deliberation, the deliberation that would normally happen in Congress, where they create committees and things to see what's actually so. They're not going to just make a policy because a bunch of people say they want, you know, you know, rainbows installed everywhere. Like that's not feasible. That's not practical. We're not going to spend money on that. So the the actual internet government is about structuring this information um, in a way that's transparent and scrutable, uh, as opposed to the the Great American Debate, which is our like service that we're working on now. Everything that we're learning from mapping this and processing this is going into an actual formal structure that will operate somewhat on its own as long as people are participating. Um, and have that deliberation to then generate policy. And then the, the AI politician can talk about that policy based on all of the collected structured argumentation that was created from the first stage of collecting information and deliberating and structuring it. From what I understand, this is like a real issue. A couple of weeks ago, there was a debate on whether or not representatives actually had to vote or represent the community based on what the community wanted, or they can just do their own thing and say, "Oh, I know it's in their best interest. I'm going to do the opposite of what they asked." And they had to like they had to like formally discuss whether or not that was that was lawful. I believe. Like so, this like this years is too late. <laughs> yeah, like I represent a district of one hundred thousand people. They're like, we like green, and you're like, yeah, blue's better. And blue's you're like, better. we're gonna go with blue. Like, no, like you can't do that. Right. Like this is a this is a real a real issue. And I love the idea of using leveraging technology to get rid of any unscrupulous activity. Right, to get to the truth faster or as best as we can. Like anything we can install, especially between public and private, right, between the government and its people. Like to to amend and to repair that through the technology footprint of, of truth. Like I'm a, I think all of us are big proponents of that. It, it comes as a threat in almost each one of our, our I feel like this is like right up the lane of like liquid technology. Mm -hmm. I was just waiting. Mm -hmm. I was just like, yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> Jared's about to boy, explode out of his seat. Connection here. here for yeah. you. That's we, yeah, this is, we, our very first guest that we had on is a um, the the inventor of the Internet of Things. Uh, he has now developed the Internet of Intelligence. Is a it's making it's doing to AI what the Internet did to computers. That's kind of the the fra the thing that he's framing it with. So to put that into perspective, um, well, I'm not going to go into it because it's your podcast and it's not their podcast. But <laughs> the big thing I can see as a connection here is that um, with this information, this speech, what his technology does is it actually derives meaning from language for AIs. So it allows the AIs to understand via a common quote unquote ontology. And I'm going to give myself a big word on that one. Cause that's, yeah, that's no big words. That's no big words. I, but I use that cause it's literally, it's, it's the only word for it, but yeah. it is a common ontology between humans and AIs so that they can process the information well. So if, if I'm, you know, if, if I'm, if I have all of society's arguments and ideas together in a database that can be understood by AI and then brought into a chatbot that could speak with people and understand what people are asking via the common language, um, we got something that's really yeah. powerful there. Uh, so that's, I, I'm very, very much looking forward to, uh, seeing what we can create, uh, from this budding relationship. But this is what UPSO is literally like for, is like, yeah. 
Connecting what? guests, connecting resources. So what if there was like an app? So I'm trying to think about like facilitation to, to the, the world, right? Like what if you're at like a dinner and you're debating something, right? What if there was an app where you could just type in what the debate was about and then it would give you both sides of the argument and the derivative of those arguments and the foundational understanding that the majority of people have. And then you go, okay, let's stop. Let's read this. And then let's try this again. Uh, that would be phenomenal. Phenomenal. Like just having, I mean, it sounds obviously like we're getting there eventually, but just having that in the middle of a conversation, like, holy moly. Like I can't, I can think of just in the last three weeks, like conversations I've had where it's like, I don't think you understand like <laughs> what you're talking about. Like let's, let's hit a, let's hit the app and like read well, both of us for five minutes and maybe I'm wrong. And let's, let's come into an understanding before we continue this conversation. I mean, take it a step further. What if you had a watch that buzzed every time you started talking about something that didn't have good facts that yeah. were associated, associated <laughs> with it? Oh my God. Or like you try oh, to post something on Instagram and it was like, like this Literally, is 98% inaccurate. Please make sure it says that you know that okay. you're posting 98% inaccurate. Like people literally say things that are not true constantly <laughs> all day. Like it's, tr it's funny because it's true and sad. Yeah. Oh. What is, what is true? That's the real question. It, it gets <laughs> to that whole idea about like, you know, how much abbreviation is in our language too. Like people say things, yes, that they, they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just parroting. They've heard something. They're like, that sounds right. Let me reiterate it. That's now my opinion. I've taken it. It's mine now. Yeah. Um, you said that earlier and it's so true. Like who, who are you listening to? Yeah. Like, who is this person? Where do they get it from? Because chances are they didn't actually do foundational research themselves. I feel like themselves. they call them like the regurgitators, right? Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's tricky too, because we don't all agree on what things mean. And that leads to a lot of confusion. Like the density and ambiguousness of terms leads a lot of people astray. For example, um, we were mapping COVID content and uh, someone had made a tweet about how there was no school shootings in March. And it was the first time that happened in like 10 years or 20 years, and here's me like reiterating it, not having all the facts, right? But essentially this was a situation that said, no school shooting has happened in the past 10 years. And um, we're like, okay, well, this is somehow related to the COVID content. It's talking about school and, and declines in violent rates and yada, yada, yada. And then it turns out like there's no actual set definition for what a school shooting is. And the database they were using to verify their facts um, had counted things like a shooting that happened near school property or like a student bringing a gun to school and it accidentally going off because it like it dropped on the floor or something. And so when we actually don't have agreed upon definitions of things that can yield so many other responses that just like explode the space with things that people assume and people how people react to that information when we didn't actually start in the same place. Because someone hears school shooting and they think student going to a school and shooting up their, their classmates and teachers. Right. But mm -hmm. this journalist who perhaps wanted a clickbaity title, you know, they were referring to a database where it's like if they just had a gun and it fell on the ground and popped, then bam, school shooting. So their, their claim was not correct because. How about the biggest thing of all right now in COVID is how many people have passed away from COVID? Like, what's our foundational definition of passed away from COVID? There's a group of people that think comorbidity means like it doesn't count, right? Like, like let's let's put some foundational truth behind this argument so that people can make their own assumption. Because we are, you turn on the news and it's like a running total of people that have died. Like, this is insane. Like, where's the truth behind this, right? Like, it, that is huge right now because. Every day, every four seconds, that, that argument's happening in the United States right now, right? 
Right. And, and it, unfortunately, that particular argument really has to reckon with both complexity and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's not standards in how these things are reported and we can't assume that there's any type of rigor in the reporting, even if, there, if it was standardized across all states, um, you know, there's a point to which we don't know. But what's really important is that we reckon with how much we really don't know when we're making decisions that are incredibly impactful. Thank you. That's, that that's is, kind of the kicker. That is the most important thing of the entire day, in my opinion. That's imagine, imagine if our entire society was built with people that thought that way. Amazing what we can accomplish and what kind of harmony, what kind of altruistic purpose we'd have. We wouldn't have a podcast. We wouldn't need to be here. That's for sure. <laughs> It would be amazing to truly live in a society that was dedicated towards inquiring into what is true and had the type of relationship with information where they did not confuse opinions with identity. Like, I really hope we get there. I hope we deal with information as if they were objects and we pick them up, we put them down, we take a look at them. If they're poisonous and covered in spikes, we don't pass it along to our fellow man. You know, Mm -hmm. I really hope we do objectify information and use it as tools instead of being used by it. What is the, what's like your biggest goal right now that you're focusing on that you're really excited about in all of this, you know, gathering knowledge? Like what's something that you've been like really driven about lately? Great question. So we're, we're finishing up our COVID convo project, um, which is mapping the COVID-19 space. Just we're, we're limited to English speaking United States and that's okay. Um, so we're finishing up COVID convo. And then we're going to get back to climate change. Like we, we've discovered 220 subtopics about climate change. There's 700 distinct like definitions, which are actually really important. Like debates hinge on these definitions. And interestingly, these 220 debates fit under six questions. So in all of these tens of thousands of arguments, they all point to what we call the fundamental questions of climate change. And I'm guessing, um, well, I'll back up. So there's there's a group called Yale Climate Communications, I believe, and they, they study American opinions on climate change. And they've identified that there are six types of American archetypes. Like there's six types of Americans that feel a certain way about climate change. And I'm thinking like, I wonder if those six types of Americans, whether they're denialists or alarmists or cautious, actually correspond to one of the six fundamental questions, like where they're hung up on having something not answered for them, for them to get it and like consider these other sides. I'm wondering if there's a correlation between them, but I'm very excited about the climate change project because um, it'll give us an opportunity to really try to facilitate a societal scale mediation. Like I mentioned, the society library is not in the business of like persuading or convincing anyone of anything, but we are interested in like increasing subject matter knowledge and increasing comprehension and understanding. Mm-hmm. And so right now we're working with, um, you know, nonviolent communication techniques so that we can create this you know, platform and create this film, this narration to take people on a tour of the database so that everyone can get on the same page. And I'm just so excited to study like the impact of that communication, like what that does for people. And um, I'm hoping we can just do that again and again and again. And once, once we knock it out of the park with the climate change project, um, you know, we're just, it's, 
full steam ahead for various types of like high impact, super polarized, persistent issues. And that's like really the beginning of the rest of the work that we're going to be doing. But I'm really excited about that is testing our high level society wide mediation on climate change just to get everyone on the same page and really be, be able to see and reckon with Maybe. like, oh, my gosh, this debate is so complex. I know just a few arguments that I hinge my whole point of view on. Right. And here it is like this massive structure, this unbelievable behemoth of a conversation. And with technology, we can actually all participate in it. And I can locate exactly where my beliefs are. And I can see it in the context of evidence and counter arguments. And I'm just really excited for what that will do to people. Mm. I feel as if they're like that polarization of somebody believing so strongly in something is actually going to be a really great um, kind of attractor to something like the Society Library for them in that they're going to really want to, at first, really want to back up what they believe because they're telling everybody and their whole, every their identity revolves Human around nature. it. They're yeah. just so, so it's like, how can I get as much information as I possibly can to back my own thing up, right? But going through that process will also open up and let them see like, okay, I have this telescope. I'm super zoomed into this one star, but in order to find out more about the story, to zoom out a little bit more, oh, wow, okay. I didn't see it from that perspective. And like a safe place for people to really reevaluate what they're believing and what they're seeing. And, and they're not getting hammered by someone for, for having the wrong opinion or, or um, it's not this competitive thing. It's literally this exploration that they are engaging into their own, that powered by their own polarity. Right. Into so it. your belief is someone who's more convicted in their opinion or their experience, whatever, they would be a, almost like a better candidate to learn about the other side because it's just like it's so explosive of I mean it's a, it's a hypothesis but it, yeah. it literally is a, a to me it, it seems as if like my gut is telling me that yeah. if somebody is so it, if somebody has something that's such a deep core belief that's being challenged constantly by other people they're going to want to figure out that core belief or get more ammo to help them with other people. And so in order to get that other ammo, they have to dig in and actually, oh, wait a minute, there's there's more to this. So um, I, I'd love to, you know, I, obviously I need to, we can't really, this is an audio podcast, so it's, it's a little tricky to see exactly how the society library functions, but maybe we can have you on in the future and do a demonstration to oh, people it. to show the actual technology itself. That would be really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and something I want to say to your point too, Jared, is uh, you mentioned safety, I believe. And that is so important is like people need to have the privacy of their own minds. Yes. I think that's, you know, perhaps why we've in part ended up in the situation we have with social media of people isolating themselves and retreating into echo chambers and communicating only with their in groups is because like it can be really devastating to be publicly challenged and like your intelligence challenge and be told you're wrong and stupid and all these things like that can be really devastating, um, especially when it's public and put on blast. So giving yeah. people the privacy and security of exploring and really beholding that night sky, right? Like, it's okay if you have your favorite star. Like, that's the only part of the sky you've been looking at. But, like, I, man, I really hope that it is an awe-inspiring experience to finally behold that whole night sky um, and have the safety and privacy and freedom to do that in a way that's not challenging to their ego. 
and insulting, frankly, which we see a lot online. Yeah, I think I think it might be time for uh, for for a cap score. So, all right, all right, beautiful. Eight, six, seven. Eight, six, seven. Nice. Eight for clarity, six for action, and seven for potential. I love that. Yeah, uh, that's great. Do we want to talk about our scores? Yeah, I mean. Action. Is this the highest action score we've given so this far? Is, yeah, this yeah. is the highest action score we have so far. Which I mean, because again, it's you are you already are doing it. You are. It's not just an idea. It's not just a um, uh, something in the ether. It's tangible and it's here and it's it's. Yeah, this being, is not coffee shop talk. Like, yeah, like, exactly. A, we have a lot of philosophical conversations, so a lot of times the action score we purposefully, well, not purposefully, but we come to a conclusion in autonomy that it's low to drive action, right? Like the potential here is crazy, but you guys haven't done nothing yet. Like there's so much opportunity for people to get involved here with your action score being so high. Like if individuals want to come to you to work with you and to work on this project, they're getting into something meaningful right away. It's not like we have to figure this out and then go to market with it. You're, you're in a debate in multiple debates, developing technology around it. That's yeah. attractive. For, There's already a machine for people to jump into. Yeah, you're not a creating a business. Definitely. You're working on a, on a cause. It's good. 100%. And yeah, I think we have a whole onboarding track. <laughs> cool. Yes, I love that. And I think there's a lot of room as well for the potential score to go up as the more and more connections, like for example, with Liquid, like if we made some kind of connection with you and Liquid, so with that the, you know, the AI politician could actually come to life. I mean, like, holy cow, what potential that has for the world like yeah. that, that that's yeah. it's incredible so i'm, I'm looking forward to that's seeing huge. what we can do to to help um to help bring yeah. bring things up and so uh, after we always do this the cap score we always just ask like what do you need like what's right now where are you guys at what do you need how can we help resources what is, what people like? yeah yeah, thank you for asking. That's an amazing question to ask a nonprofit. Great. Um, so we actually keep a list of different tools that have yet to be developed by our team. Um, we're, we're supported by like 113 donors, and there's many different pieces to our organization. We have researchers and analysts. We have archivists. We have transcribers, extractors, mappers, which means they input it structured into the database, and then all our tech team, which maintains all of the tools that we use, but also create new tools. So there are plenty of different dashboards that we need to create. We need to edit like our web annotation software. So someone who does like web apps or is a developer of any kind, we could probably put you to work if you'd like to donate some of you know, the hours of your time, we'd greatly appreciate it. Um, and then anyone who also wants to go through our logic and argumentation program, we just ask, there's a certain level of commitment, certain number of hours per week or months that they commit to. We usually, you know, um, sort that out one-on-one over a phone call. Um, but we do take people, train them, and then they can either be archivists or analysts. So we do have a whole volunteer program for that as well. And so also we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So anyone donating means that we get to pull on our trained volunteers onto full-time staff, which is always amazing to be able to keep the people that we train. Um, so yeah, so any, any donations of time or treasure or connections to people who may have an interest in supporting us as a nonprofit would be greatly appreciated. Awesome. awesome. Incredible. Yeah. And love we it. would love, I, maybe we could share that list. The, the, the Yeah. What's the website? Well, so our website is societylibrary.org. And then all of our programs have their own websites too. Greatamericandebate.org, covidconvo.org, um, internetgovernment.org. They're all connected, but you can all find them at societylibrary.org. Okay. Right. Amazing. And I'll put those in the show notes as well. 
Yeah. Oh, thank so, you. It is an absolute pleasure to meet you today. Yes, thank I'm, you so th- much. I'm excited so much, about Jamie. this. Taking the time. Yeah, I'm, yeah, thank you all so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for that wonderful question. It's very gener- generous of you to offer your platform to express that need. So thank you. That's you what we're here for. That's literally what this is here for, <laughs> is to like bring the resources together. I mean, that's like why we started this. It was like, all right, people have great ideas. How can they actually be implemented and not just talked about and and be like, that was a great idea. I'll see you in a year. You know, it's like, yeah, if we forget to ask you that question, we got to start all the way over from scratch and yeah. start again. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to, to talk to us. And this is great. And sure hopefully we can have you back on the show. Um, awesome. Soon. Jared loves what you're doing. So we, I'm very much into it. It's awesome. Cool. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, guys. And uh, I'll see you next time. Take nice. care. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.